everybody, what's up? Welcome to Bible Prophecy Talk. My name is Chris and it's good to be back with you again today. Today I wanted to talk about the so-called early church fathers, or just the church fathers in general. This is a term that we use for the people of the early church, the writings of the early church, and what they believed specifically about the timing of the rapture. As many of you know, I'm working on a film about the rapture, and one of the sections of this film will be about what the early church believed about the rapture. Now, it's important, and I'm, I know most of you know, that the whatever the early church believed about something doesn't really mean anything on, one, on the one hand. I mean, it's not that's not how we get doctrine. We get doctrine from the Bible alone. Uh, that being said, all the doctrines that we hold today, we can find evidence, some evidence, for uh, in the church fathers. And it would be weird indeed to believe something uh, today, uh, fervently, some doctrinal belief that had no uh, history in the early church. That would be a weird thing. So, the question is, what did the early church believe? And I guess I should make this distinction. The church father's writings are, are sometimes grouped into various groups, but probably the most important of these groups is sometimes called the anti-Nicene fathers. Anti meaning before Nicaea, the Council of Nicaea. So this is the first uh, 300 years or so of uh, the early church. And the reason there's a hard distinction there is because somewhere around there, around Nicaea, not necessarily because of Nicaea, but somewhere around there, they started interpreting the Bible in a much more allegorical way. Some, some early uh, uh, teachers like Origen and Augustine later on really kind of embraced this allegorical interpretation of the Bible. So, for example, the anti-Nicene fathers, the early guys, they looked a lot like we do today. They believed in, they were pre-millennial. They believed that uh, there would be a future thousand-year reign, that the Antichrist was going to come in the future, that there was going to be a rapture. You know, they believed kind of what we futurist Christians believe today. Whereas after them, they started to get more into... Uh, the idea, oh, a thousand years really isn't a thousand years. It was just sort of symbolic. And the, and that kind of, once you go that direction and what the Bible says something, nah, it doesn't really mean that. Let me tell you what it means. Once you go open that door, you can basically change whatever doctrine you want. So it really wasn't until the Reformation where people finally got the Bible in their own language and they could read it for this, themselves again that they really started um, uh, saying, hey, this actually says this. I think that we should believe that. So they got back to the anti-Nicene fathers after a, a you know a thousand plus year detour. So the big question is, what did the early church believe about the timing of the rapture? And just to kind of set the stage a little bit further, pre-rathers, post-tribbers, mid-tribbers have been saying forever that there's no evidence of pre-tribulationalism anywhere in the early church writings. Not the early, early church, not the Middle Ages church, not the anywhere church uh, fathers up until the early 1800s with the Plymouth Brethren and Darby. But on the other side, pre-tribbers seem to constantly be publishing articles in uh, these peer-reviewed journals like Bibliotheca Sacra at Dallas or uh, the Pre-Trib uh, pre Resource Center with Thomas Ice or, or this one we're going to deal with today. But they'll say, hey, look, we've, we've proven pre-tribulationalism in the early church. Look at this church, church father or this church father. And they have these bold headlines to say, once again, we found more evidence of pre-tribulationalism. But if you read those articles, and probably more importantly, if you take the quote that that article is about and read it in context, it becomes plain to everybody who cares to seek the truth here, that they have not found anything that would suggest pre-tribulationalism in the early church, and they know it. And I think that's what we're going to see today. All right, so let's get into this. And probably 
the most important issue to understand here is that really there is no debate in terms of the scholars. You know, when you get into academia where you really can't say, you know, pretend things don't exist or whatever, everybody knows, the pre-trib scholars know, the pre-rath scholars and the post-trib scholars, everybody knows that the early church, those that taught about the rapture and some other event in the end time, so you could tell what they believed about the actual timing of the rapture, every one believed that the church would be raptured after the Antichrist was revealed and after the Antichrist began to persecute the church. That's what they believed. That's the answer to the question. What did the early church believe about that? It's almost completely unanimous. And not just the early church fathers. I, I didn't mention that distinction just to say, ah, oh, these are the ones that believe it, the others don't. No, we could keep going all throughout the history of the church. And it's this pretty consistent picture that, the, at least with that very basic idea, that the church would be uh, raptured after the Antichrist is revealed and, and it begins to persecute the church. Not every one of them mentioned the the uh, seven-year time period or anything like that, but those that did mention it, you can tell that they believe that the rapture was at the very least after the midpoint. That's the the cutoff. I mean, I, that's the, the mi bare minimum. Some of them believed it would be later or whatever, but the bare minimum was sometime after the midpoint. There's no evidence whatsoever of pre-tribulationalism in the early church in that sense. In other words, a pre-tribulational scholar knows very well that they would always, every single time, 10 out of 10, lose an argument about, did the early church believe in pre-tribulationalism? The answer is a pretty quick no, they did not. However, and, and again, this isn't just me, a pre-rather, saying this. This is when you read papers by pre-tribbers on this issue, again, in a peer-reviewed uh, journal, they can't lie, but they do every single thing that they can to, to to try to get around it. So you have to, but take Larry Crutchfield, who I mention all the time, a pre-tribulational scholar, also an expert in the early church, concluded his paper with the idea that he couldn't find evidence of pre-tribulationalism, uh, but he could find what he called intra-tribulationalism, meaning the exact opposite of pre-tribulationalism, that the rapture would happen in the midst of the tribulation, which is, of course, what I just said. And then another paper, um, kind of the updated version of that from James Stitzinger. This is a paper from uh, uh, Master's Seminary, and I talk about that a lot in the, the film. I kind of use it as a template, and I like it because, because it is uh, more contemporary. It's taking Crutchfield and b building on it, and he agrees at the beginning of his paper anyway. He says, and most would see the church suffering through some portion of the tribulation period. So he reluctantly doesn't go into much detail about what that means or whatever, but he says, yeah, there is some. Okay, well, they believe they would they'd be raptured through some portion of the tribulation period. So again, how do you define pre-tribulationalism? And I would say that a very uh, a lenient definition would have to be before the tribulation. And of course, in, in pre-tribulationalist speak, the tribulation means the entire 70th week of Daniel. So the rapture has to occur before the 70th week of Daniel. But even more fundamentally, I think that they would agree that it can't be pre-tribulational if the church is being persecuted by the Antichrist. I think that's just a deal breaker. It's just not a pre-tribulational rapture if the rapture actually comes after the Antichrist begins persecuting the church at the midpoint. There's just a million things that are anathema to a pre-tribber in that statement, right? So it's just fundamentally not true. So I won't say all pre-tribulational scholars know this because not all pre-tribulational scholars specialize in the church fathers, but of those that do, this is common knowledge and they admit as much in their papers. So in order to get around this, the first thing that they need to do is minimize any talk about what I just said about what the early church really believed. They won't deny it, 
They'll just not offer any of that up uh, free of charge, you know. Even in these papers that are supposed to, that are on that very subject, that, that as a normal course in research would bring up those kinds of things, it's just, I mean, other than those one lines that basically have to admit it, the early church actually believed that the rapture would happen during the tribulation, you know, one line that, uh, that shows that they really know the truth. Uh, the rest of it just kind of acts like it doesn't exist. They'll quote it out of context, even when the very next line in the quote that they're uh, quoting actually is talking about the Antichrist persecuting the church. They just won't mention that. So there's a lot of that going on. The, the deception is more or less depending on the author. Some of them get really deceptive with it. Others try to be a, a little more faithful, but it's basically minimization is the uh, watchword for uh, pre-tribulationalists talking about the early church. The next and most important thing that they do to try to deal with this issue is to kind of change the criteria for what equals pre-tribulationalism in the early church. And this is really important. Um, this is the idea of eminence in the early church. If you read a lot of the articles, you'll see this buzzword of eminence. They're replacing basically pre-tribulationalism with eminence in a lot of articles. They're, they're claiming that they've found evidence of eminence in the early church, or maybe that the article really means they found what they think is evidence of eminence in the early church, but the headline is we found evidence of pre-tribulationalism in the early church. So they really interchange the ideas a lot. In other words, they know they're never going to win the actual argument about the timing of the rapture. So they've said, if we can find eminence in the early church, we get to claim pre-tribulationalism in the early church. So that's the basic idea. And if you haven't seen or heard the podcast I did about uh, eminence a couple uh, podcasts ago, check it out. I think it's called A More Clear Refutation of Eminence and goes through a lot of the, the different ways they try to prove it in the Bible because they all apply here because basically they're quoting passages where the early church fathers are quoting the Bible uh, saying that the uh, rapture will be uh, near, uh, the rapture will be soon, that you should watch for the rapture, all the things that they use in the Bible to say, ha, the Bible does teach eminence, which as we've said a million times, none of those things mean eminence. The, that's just not what they mean in English or in Greek or anything else. The, the rapture can be near, anything can be near, but it doesn't mean it will happen at any moment without any preceding events. The harvest can be near or soon. A feast can be near or soon. My birthday can be near, but it's not eminent. It's just they, they have yet to actually prove an instance in the Bible where eminency uh, is true. They've just basically for so the last hundred years told their congregations that if when you see the word watch for something, it means that the writer believed that the rapture could happen at any moment, which isn't that an oxymoron in itself to watch for something that has no signs? What are you exactly looking for? Anyway, what I love about this uh, particular situation is because it is the death knell, not just to their idea of uh, pre-tribulationalism in the early church, but also it shows the uh, utter bankruptcy of the way that they're trying to prove eminence. It's, it's beautiful, really. And also understand that this is no small part of their argument. Uh, this it constitutes in this paper one-third of his argument. Five of the 15 church fathers that Stitzinger quotes in this paper are all basically just real simple lines about the church father believing that the rapture would be near or something like that. So he's, I just call them fake eminency quotes. So uh, he'll say, look, this church father said that the rapture was near. Therefore, that church father believed the rapture was imminent uh, or could happen at any moment. So that, that constitutes a full third of his argument. But the one that I love 
because it helps illustrate some of the others in this that we'll come back to, is from the Didache. The Didache, spelled kind of like Didache, is one of the earliest documents outside of the New Testament that we have. Uh, it was, you know, it's pretty widely uh, dated to about the first century, about almost a century before one of the first church fathers, Irenaeus. Um, so this is a really early document, and it's a very rich document, too. It's like a commentary on the Bible. So there's a lot of very detailed information about the timing of this thing and that thing. It's, it's a really interesting document. You should read it. Um, but anyway, pre-tribbers will quote one line from it uh, and, and very typically not quote any of the rest of it. The line that they quote, well, let me read what Stitzinger in this paper says of this first. He says, the final chapter of the Didache provides, quote, one of the clearest and most comprehensive statements on eminency. So he is saying that this is going to show us that they really believe that the rapture could happen at any moment with no preceding signs. And he quotes this line, Be watchful for your life, let your lamp not be quenched, and your loins not be ungirded, but be ye ready, for ye know not the day or the hour in which the Lord cometh. Okay, this is a pretty typical, this is the Lord's uh, uh, parables in uh, the latter part of Matthew 24 and 25, he says this several times. You don't know the day or the hour, so be ready, be watchful. So he's just they're just re-quoting that. But again, in pre-trib speak, the idea of being watchful and being ready, not knowing the day or the hour, means that it could happen at any moment, that there are no preceding signs. So that's what he said. He said this is one of the clearest and most comprehensive statements of eminency. So as I said, this shows how utterly bankrupt this, this way of proving eminency is because they don't quote the rest of the Didache and the, the lines after this because then it gets into um, all the things that they think are going to happen. Uh, starting in verse 3 in this chapter, For in the last days the false prophets and the corruptors shall be multiplied, and the sheep shall be turned into wolves, and the love shall change to hate. For as lawlessness increased, the, they shall hate one another and persecute and betray, and they shall appear, and then then shall appear the deceiver of the world as a son of God, and shall do signs and wonders, and the earth shall give over into his hands, and shall be commit iniquities which have never been seen since the world began. Then shall the creation of mankind come to a fiery trial, and many shall be offended and be lost, but they who endure in their faith shall be saved by the curse itself. The curse itself is a reference to Jesus, who is accursed on our behalf, etc., etc. And then, uh, and then shall appear signs of the truth, first the sign spread out in heaven, and then the sign of the sound of the trumpet, and thirdly, the resurrection of the dead. What I take from this is 18 signs that, remember, remember the thing that they're quoting is, is them saying to be watchful. Well, they're saying to be watchful of this no less than 18 signs that come before the rapture. I need you to get this. The, the, the pre-tribbers are saying that being watchful because you don't know the day or the hour, that means imminence. There's no arguing that in their mind. They can't prove it, but there's just no way to argue that. This person definitely, who, who wrote the Didache, did not believe that telling his, his readers to be watchful because they don't know the day or the hour he definitely did not mean that as imminence because in because he believes that there are signs including the antichrist including the persecution of the church including signs in the heavens and all kinds of stuff before the resurrection of the dead he just did not believe in imminence period he does a similar thing with barnabas uh barnabas is a guy who wrote around 117 138 somewhere early 2nd century and the quote that he he uses in this paper is 
this. It says, For the day is at hand on which all things shall perish with the evil one. The Lord is near and his reward. So the Lord is near and his reward, which is almost certainly talking about the rapture. And again, in the pre-trib mind, you can't say that the Lord is near. That means to them it's imminent. It can happen at any moment with no preceding signs. And first, I need you to realize how flimsy that concept is. Why have we continued to buy that, that him saying that the Lord is near means it, it is imminent? With the church fathers, we have this perfect way to show how dumb that is. Barnabas, if you read his writings, uh, believed that the Antichrist uh, was near. He he talked a lot about the, you know the ten kingdoms reign on the earth and the one's going to rise up and he, he was he was very uh, concentrated on the Antichrist. He believed he was in the end times and that the Antichrist was going to show up next. So he, he he was always telling his readers to prepare spiritually for that for for trying to to face the Antichrist. So uh, if Barnabas believed anything was imminent, it was the uh, the appearance of the Antichrist and the signs uh, that uh, Jesus talked about in the Olivet Discourse. He, and so we know that when he says the Lord is near in his reward, he can mean that in the same way I can say that as a pre-rather, and it just means the Lord is near in his reward, and it just doesn't mean imminent. So, and notably, of course, is what's absent from this first part of about the anti-Nicene fathers, because from, from this section, uh, this writer goes straight to the Middle Ages. So we're going to be in the Middle Ages next, but what he doesn't quote in any part of this paper is those wonderful quotes from the best church fathers out there, the Hippolytuses and the Irenaeuses and on and on, where we have these clear statements of definitely uh, not pre-tribulationalism. So all that stuff is skipped in lieu of these flimsy quotes where he says it means eminence, but is provably not eminence. All right, so let's move on to the next one uh, cited in this paper. And as I mentioned, this is in the Middle Ages now. So we're well past the early church. But this one is uh, one that I think is kind of the centerpiece of pre-tribulational arguments about the early church. It's called Pseudo-Ephraim. And in this paper, he actually concludes the paper by citing this, this quote and saying, yeah, and this is why we now know that uh, I've proven the case that pre-tribulationalism did in fact exist before Darby, and he mentions this in particular. So I mentioned that to say this is a big deal. So pseudo-Ephraim, we call it pseudo because it's a false name. Everybody knows that Ephraim, who was a real church father writing around the three or four hundreds, did not write this. This was a guy who just kind of wanted to put a name on it that had some, some gravitas, uh, so so he wrote this. And it, I, I know that sounds like I'm leading the witness. I'm sort of making this seem like it's not an uh, important document or whatever. But um, it does come up later, this, this false name situation. But for now, let's just uh, get to the quote. It says, All the saints and the elect of God are gathered together before the tribulation, which is to come, and are taken to the Lord in order that they may not see at any time the confusion which overwhelms the world because of our sins. Okay, so there are a lot of things to do here. Number one, we need to know what uh, this pseudo-Ephraim believed about the end times. Did he think that the church would face the Antichrist? If so, what, when would that happen? That will help us to understand what he means by before the tribulation, because really that's the key issue here. What do you mean by before the tribulation? Everybody, and I, I can't imagine a pre-tribulationalist would not admit this, uh, but, but everybody knows that he didn't mean tribulation in the way that modern pre-tribulationalists use the term tribulation. Nobody ever used the term tribulation like that until recently. 
tribulation in the Greek, I think he wrote this in Syria, so I'm assuming that this was written in Greek. So probably thalipsis. I didn't look that up. But in any case, in the Bible, the word thalipsis or tribulation can mean a number of things. It can mean persecution. It can mean the wrath of God. It can mean uh, uh, all kinds of stuff. The question is, what in context does it mean? I should also mention that uh, the term great tribulation, that is megas thalipsis, that on the other hand does become kind of a technical term in the Bible and in theological circles. And it means the, the persecution of the Antichrist that begins after the abomination of desolation at the midpoint. So the great tribulation, everybody knows, is not seven years long. It is a, it's a period that begins at the midpoint. The, just the blank term tribulation is ambiguous. So we just need to know what the context is. So what does pseudo-Ephraim mean by before the tribulation? Because that's kind of where this ends. If he, Because I believe that if this means before the tribulation, which is to come uh, at any time, so we won't see the confusion, that's going to be important later, is, does the writer mean the confusion? Is that the wrath of God? Because then I totally agree. We're going to be gathered together, raptured before the tribulation so that we won't see the confusion that overwhelms the world because of, the, of our sins. Then I'm totally on board. But if he means we're going to be gathered together before the tribulation, and in his mind, tribulation means, you know, everything. The Antichrist showing up, the Antichrist persecuting the church before the 70th week of Daniel begins. So we need to know that before we can make any kind of judgment on this. But a pre-tribber doesn't even go into any of those details. In his mind, he's already done it. He wants his readers to do the dumbest thing ever to think that, that this writer meant the word tribulation in the same way that modern pre-tribulationalists use it, that is to refer to the entire 70th week of Daniel. He, he wants his readers to do that and makes no other sort of provision, okay? But look how bad this is. Okay, so uh, he goes on and he says this about this quote. He, talk, he says this about Pseudo-Ephraim in general. Uh, this is Stitzinger in this paper. He says, it describes, that is, Pseudo-Ephraim describes the imminent rapture. Oh, does it? I didn't catch that. Followed by, here it is, followed by three and a half years of great tribulation under the rule of the Antichrist, followed by the coming of Christ, the defeat of Antichrist, and the eternal state. Wow, that's what he said. So now, if this is true, I, I got to say that I'm wrong, okay? Because this this sort of interpretation of this, and he's going off other things that he read in Pseudo-Ephraim, which we're going to look at. Uh, he doesn't quote them in the paper. He just sort of summarizes it here. Uh, he says that he wants us to believe that what we just read, that Pseudo-Ephraim saying before the tribulation, we're going to be gathered together. He wants us to believe that what Pseudo-Ephraim thinks is that after we're gathered together, then the Antichrist shows up and then starts, uh, you know, doing stuff for three and a half years, and then Christ comes to judge him, and, and the eternal state begins. That's what he just told his readers. Now, let me read you the last paragraph in this, in this what he's quoting from. This, there's a couple different versions of Pseudo-Ephraim, but the one he's quoting from. It says, and when the three and a half years have been completed... Okay, so now I would admit that when the three and a half years have been completed... He can be referring to the first half or the second half of the three and a half years. It doesn't really matter because uh, none of this works with what he just said. And when the three and a half years have been completed, the time of the Antichrist, though which he uh, will have seduced the world, will come the sign of the Son of Man. And coming forward, the Lord shall appear with great power and much majesty, and also even with all the powers of the heavens, with the whole course of the saints, and with those who bear the sign of the Holy Cross upon their shoulders. As the angelic trumpet precedes him, which shall sound and declare, Arise, O sleeping ones, arise, meet Christ, because his hour of judgment has come. 
Then Christ shall come and his enemy shall be thrown into confusion and the Lord shall destroy him by the spirit of his mouth. Okay, so what is important here? There's a, there's a couple really important things. The first is that what we see here is that Pseudo-Ephraim didn't believe that after the three and a half years, the Antichrist would then rule. After the three and a half years have been completed, the Antichrist would be judged. The Antichrist, according to this paragraph, will be judged at the resurrection of the dead. Not, not another three and a half years. Try to get three, another three and a half years out of this. As the angelic trumpet precedes them, which shout and declare, Arise, O sleeping ones, arise, meet Christ, because his hour of judgment has come. Then Christ shall come, and the enemy shall be thrown down into confusion. The Lord shall destroy him by the spirit of his mouth. Did you, did you read in there somewhere that between the rapture and the destroying him with the spirit of his mouth that the Antichrist ruled for three and a half years? No. This Remember, this thing started with, and when the three and a half years have been completed. This is, he quotes, he says the exact wrong thing. He tells his readers the exact wrong thing. He does not quote this. He doesn't want his readers trying to figure this out. Okay, look, I'm going to try to give him the benefit of the doubt here. I know I'm a little hot, and this issue does make me a little uh, frustrated, I have to admit. But I want to give him the benefit of the doubt. This writing from Pseudo-Ephraim is actually a lot like another false writing from uh, somebody called Pseudo-Methodius. They came out at the same time in Syria in the Middle Ages, and if you read them, they are hyper confusing uh, to somebody who kind of has a biblical understanding of the end times because, and I talked about this in my uh, uh, book, The Islamic Antichrist Debunked, uh, a big section about, uh, in that book is about this you know, idea about Islamic eschatology, the Mahdi and, and all this stuff. All that, all that, the concept of what we get, the Mahdi and, and all this stuff is really weird, you know? Well, it all developed in Syria as a result of these pseudo, particularly pseudo-Ephraim and pseudo-Methodius. And it was, a, it was a genre that started showing up at that time that really took a lot of weird elements of this thing called the last Roman emperor. Okay, so this is right at the end of Rome. Rome was dying. It was really weird for people. Rome had been around for a thousand years. So the concept of Rome falling and being no more was kind of a big deal and hard to handle. So they had started to develop this theory that this Roman emperor would show up and he would be awesome. And the the Huns, in some cases, or sometimes it's the Islamic people or whatever, before any of that happens, the last Roman emperor has these epic battles that to the untrained reader would seem like the Battle of Armageddon or whatever. But this human last Roman emperor will have these epic battles, he will defeat all these en enemies, and then Rome will be restored to its former majesty and glory, and he's gonna rule for like seven to 10 years. And then after that's all done, then the Gog-Magog War will happen, which is another really sort of typical weird thing in these writings. And then after the Gog-Magog War, then the Antichrist shows up. Uh, then you have the rapture, the return of Christ, et cetera, what we kind of commonly understand as the regular end times events. So if you want to look at it like this, there's all these weird false starts to the untrained eye. So a person like Stitzinger really could read this quote early on and, and think that what he's reading with this, the last Roman emperor trope of defeating the, the earthly enemies, he could think that that's Armageddon or something. If you don't know what you're reading, you could believe that. And maybe if you pretended like this last paragraph didn't exist, I could see how you could plausibly mm, not feel too deceptive in saying what he said. So I'm trying to give him the benefit of the doubt. It is a kind of a weird concept. 
And I know I spent way too much time on this particular thing, but uh, oh, I did want to do one more thing with pseudoephraim, and that is to, to check our facts, to prove what I'm saying is true. And that is in this last thing, uh, when he says, and the angelic trumpet precedes him, and which shall sound and declare, arise, O sleeping ones, arise, meet Christ. The only hope for the pre-tribber here is to say, ah, Chris, that's not the rapture, even though he's talking about the last trumpet and, and the, the resurrection of the dead, and uh, arise, O sleeping ones, to meet Christ, which sounds a lot like the rapture, but their argument would have to be, no, he's talking about some, like, the resurrection at the end of the 70th week or something, maybe the rapture happened earlier. Well, that's not a possibility because of this line. After he says, you know, arise, O sleeping ones, arise, meet Christ, because his hour of judgment has come, then Christ shall come and the enemy shall be thrown into confusion. So we know that this trumpet sound and the rising of the sleeping ones is, is the rapture. Therefore, after the Antichrist and after the three and a half years have been completed, because what we escaped by the rapture, according to this writer, uh, which is, uh, I guess, in his mind, what he, he, he uh, thinks of as the wrath of God, is being thrown into confusion. The Lord shall destroy by the spirit of his mouth. So we're escaping confusion, according to this writer, which, again, look at that first quote that the pre-tribbers actually do quote, which says, all the saints and the elect of God are gathered together before the tribulation, which is to come, and are taken to the Lord in order that they may not see at any time the confusion. So it's a, it's a theme with this writer that the rapture is there to escape the confusion. And what that does is it allows us to look at this last paragraph and know exactly that this writer, what this writer's uh, viewpoint was in terms of the timeline. And friends and neighbors, this ain't pre-tribulational one single bit. I don't want to bore everybody to tears here, so I will try to speed up here. Another third, another five of the 15 quotes in this paper are from about 1586 to 1795, and they're from what are called premillennial historicists who believed in something called the pre-conflagration theory. Now, what's interesting about this, in this paper, he does not mention this. Uh, he, he, he wants his readers of this paper to just take these quotes at face value, to read whatever they want to read into them. He's leading them to, to believe something, that they, that they meant something, uh, by these things. And let's see if I have a quote here at handy. Um, yeah, uh, this is one is from Peter Jury, who died in 1713. He said, Christ would come in the air to rapture the saints and return to heaven before the battle of Armageddon. First of all, there's nothing really particularly offensive about this. All of these quotes actually can be filed under the heading of, yeah, pre-wrath believes that too. Uh, so these aren't that offensive, but there's something even dumber going on here. Because of course, Pre-Wrath believes that the rapture will happen before Armageddon. Really, this is like pre-tribs always do. They think that if they can show something that's against some post-tribulationalists, that somehow they've proven pre-tribulationalism. So some post-tribulationalists believe that Armageddon and the rapture are basically the same thing. So they think that by showing, hey, this writer believed that the rapture would happen before the Battle of Armageddon, looks like pre-tribulationalism is true. No, I mean, at best, it looks like, you know, pre-wrath, and it looks like some guy in the 1700s <laughs> believed that uh, 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 more like pre-wrath or pre-trib or mid-trib or basically anybody but some post-tribulationalists. So it's a dumb argument to begin with, and all of them are like that. But even worse, all of these five quotes, which one of them is the one he quotes and said, you know, this is the greatest thing ever, come, <laughs> come from this guy named Mead, who created this theory called the pre-conflagration theory. 
he, again, does not mention any of this in the paper, but what the pre-conflagration theory is basically that these people would be right before the Battle of Armageddon, they would be raptured in the air, and it could be hours or something like that, maybe hours, maybe days at the most, but they're basically raptured and they come right back down to earth. It is, it is definitely not a, a uh, pre-tribulational rapture, and it's actually interesting because Thomas Ice, uh, who I typically don't agree with uh, much, who is the you know pre pre-trib resource center guy, uh, he wrote a paper which is effectively rebuking people like Stitchinger and others who use these particular five quotes and claim that they're supporting pre-tribulationalism because, as Ice, who is obviously a pre-tribber, notes, quote, Mead's interval, the pre-conflagration theory, between the rapture and the second coming is likely only hours or days, but not years as required by a pre-tribulational viewpoint. The second Peter 3.10 conflagration is a final destruction of heaven and earth in preparation for the millennium within Mead's system. He's also not mentioning that this conflagration is the wrath of God. That's what they're escaping, not the Antichrist persecution or anything like that. So there's just no reason for this to constitute one-third of his cherry-picked uh, uh, quotes from the church fathers that prove pre-tribulationalism. At best, this proves that there are some people in the 1700s that believe that the rapture would happen before Armageddon, and he's not telling people that these people were 180 degrees not pre-tribulational, and that the only thing that they're talking about escaping is the wrath of God. It's just borderline, I don't know, it's dishonest at, at best. There are just a few more here, and I'm just going to really quickly breeze through them because they are easily pushed aside. Uh, one is this uh, Codex, I don't know if I'm going to pronounce this right, Amiantinus, written around 700 BC. Uh, it literally just mentioned the word rapture, rapturo, in the title, so it's in Latin, I guess. Um, and I read through Stitzinger's argument. I mean, it just says rapture in the title. It doesn't talk about anything pre-tribulational. So that one is just like, what's this even doing here? Uh, one of them was a real deal cult leader in the 1300s, even the guy that, and actually Alan knows and has talked to, Alan Kirshner knows the guy who actually found this quote in the early church and and says of this guy's views, if you read the rest of the, the paper, the guy clearly believed that he was in the last three and a half years of the end time tribulation. So whatever he believed, it was definitely not pre-tribulationalism. And then the final one I have here, he talks about uh, John Calvin. And the quote is, commenting on Christ's teaching on the Gospels, he writes, uh, Jesus wishes the disciples to be uncertain as to his coming, but to be prepared to expect him every moment. So that every moment. And I have to admit, you know, that's a little close for comfort in terms of eminence. Uh, and the thing about it is that I need to say this too, of course, that, that there's one sense in which the rapture will be imminent. Uh, once the Antichrist begins to persecute the church, once the signs that Christ told us to watch for have happened, then the rapture really will be imminent. We're going to be, the rapture can happen. We don't know the day or the hour. We are commanded, however, to know the general signs. Once we've seen the general signs, uh, then we know that the rapture will be imminent. So I don't want to entirely prejudice everybody against the concept of an any moment rapture. There will be an any moment rapture, but only after a number of precursors take place. I mention that because it's likely that Calvin probably did believe in eminence. But Calvin, of all the people on this list, is unique because Calvin believed that the Antichrist was on earth and persecuting people at the time that he was writing. 
So that's unique among Calvin. So it, it's actually biblical in one sense. Uh, in other words, Calvin believed that the Antichrist was the Pope or the system of the Pope, one of those things. And of course, all the persecutions of the Catholic Church on the uh, the reformers were just horrendous, of course. So, you know, they had a reason for, for thinking that. The idea, though, is his concept of the rapture being any moment or every moment, as it says here, that's at least biblically accurate, a biblically accurate usage of eminence. So that's a little bit uh, tricky for me, uh, I suppose, of all these here. But it's also, as I said, the only person on this list that actually believed that the Antichrist was on earth and and, and uh, killing people at the moment. All right, everybody. So thanks for sticking around and uh, listening. If you're still here, you can go to the website, BibleProphecyTalk.com. Check out uh, the link to the books that I have there. I don't think I ever mentioned them. Uh, so yeah, there is a link there to the books that I've written as well as to all the audiobooks and so on. There is, as I think I mentioned before, the audiobook for uh, The Rapture Question Answered Plain and Simple by Robert Van Campen, which we helped to produce. So you can go to Audible and check that out. Um, and the movie is uh, moving right along. I expect to really have some some rock-solid dates in terms of release uh, soon. I'm done with the writing process and well into storyboarding and animation stuff at this point. I've got a lot of B-roll to shoot and a lot of other things to do, but we are definitely moving right along. Thanks to everybody who donated to that project. We did meet 100% of our goal, and I uh, just can't thank you enough for that. I really want to make it uh, just awesome and something that can really change the world. So, see you next time. Thank you.